Well, greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what a joy to come together on the most important week in the Christian calendar, on, on Holy Week. And so today we remember as uh, they welcomed our Savior into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry saying, Hosanna, save us. Save us. And we also uh, remember that one day he will triumphantly return uh, and we will still on that day cry, Hosanna, uh, save us once again in the ultimate sense. Uh, today we also are looking at the epilogue of the book of Ecclesiastes, the end of chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like to. And this book has certainly remind us, reminded us uh, that we have some things that we need saving from uh, in this world. And so as we begin this ultimate message, let me just summarize what we've learned so far over the course of about three months together. Uh, in chapter 1, remember we learned that the main point of Ecclesiastes is about this one question, can mankind find meaning in this life without God? And Solomon said the answer is no, no, not without an infinite reference point. It's impossible. In chapter 2, we discovered that we cannot find meaning in anything, whether that's pleasure or knowledge or possessions. Solomon said, I tried everything under the sun. He had money, power, huge success in his career, but at the end of it all, he said those are all dead ends, it's all meaningless, it's all a chasing after the wind. Like Mick Jagger, he said, I can't get no satisfaction. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And then throughout the book, Solomon has been a little bit like an ancient photographer, if you will. Uh, taking his camera and pointing them at different areas of life and taking these snapshots of life, mostly in the dark uh, shadows of the valley moments of life. Chapter 3, he, he looked at the monotony and the repetition of times and seasons that, that just continue to go round and round and round, snap, meaningless. In chapter 4, he looked at the problem of oppression and how there was no one to comfort the, the oppressed and to dry their tears. And he took his camera and he took a picture of the oppression. Snap. Meaningless. In chapter 5, he saw the toil of the workplace. Took his camera. Snap. Meaningless. And then in chapter 6 and 7, he saw the problem of suffering and even that good people suffer. And he took his camera and he said, meaningless snap on and on and on he keeps giving us one snapshot after another none of these pictures in color all of them kind of in black and white if you will each one attaching the same statement underneath of his picture underneath of that frame and the statement is vanity of vanities all is vanity it's all emptiness it's all absurd it's all futility you remember the word he's been using is the hebrew word hevel it's it's that word that means uh, merest of breaths. It's used 38 different times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it means to be futile, to, me, to be short-lived. It's something that's here and then it's gone. Uh, remember also the book of Ecclesiastes is about living in this world under the sun. Uh, the world down here, this fallen world that does not always behave. This is a world where good people die young and bad people live till 105. This is a world where we see oppression and injustice and suffering. And so this is a world that is enigmatic and it doesn't always make sense. And in this world, Solomon has told us that we need wisdom. And wisdom is necessary to avoid folly in this world. But although wisdom can provide you an edge, you'll recall he said, be careful because wisdom still does not provide you immunity. 
Another theme that came up in the book of Ecclesiastes is that this life is very short and transient, and as such, we should treat it as a gift. And Solomon has taught us again and again and again, seven different times, that life is to be enjoyed, though it is not always to be explained. And so he said you need to live uh, with things like uncertainty and, and inevitable risks and play the hands that you've been dealt and leave the results up to God. And so why is this book in the Bible? This book is a reminder that if you're attempting to live a meaningful life in a secular sense, a life without any absolutes, a life without values in reference to God, if you want to have meaning that way, then you are attempting to grasp the unattainable. It is a fool's errand. And then in the final section of the book, Solomon addresses our biggest problem of all, the problem of death. As he describes the process of aging, you'll recall last Sunday, Pastor Bob eloquently described that poem of chapter 12, where there's this, this section of scripture that, that talks about mankind as if he's terminal. And he describes the human body like a house that's been dilapidated. The doors are shut and the windows are dim. He says, one day you're not going to be able to do what you're doing now. One day you'll be squinting. And one day you'll be stooping. And one day the grinders will be few. Which means one day you're going to be eating spinach souffle. Uh, one day you're going to be needing prayer support to eat a pork chop. This is all coming. It's inevitable. You won't be able to do what you do now. And the point that Solomon is making in chapter 12 is that you aren't bulletproof. So this is why you need to enjoy life today. Because when the clock strikes, it's over. And so he says, rejoice in your youth. Remember your creator before the dark days come. And over time, we learn that if we, if we are not careful, that as we age, we can get fussy and we can get gripey and we can get grumpy and we can get bitter Solomon says, don't do that. Enjoy the beauty of your life today as a gift. Remember your creator before it all comes to an end. When you wake up in the morning, you should say, good morning, Lord. Not good, Lord. It's morning. You should say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Enjoy life today in light of our common end. So Solomon is saying, why don't you get some hindsight right now? This is the beauty of the book of Ecclesiastes. We can learn all these lessons in advance. And that brings us to the final lesson of the book, the epilogue of the book, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. You see, if the reality of death that Pastor Bob reminded us about last week doesn't motivate you to remember your Creator and live for Him today, then Solomon says, I've got one more inevitable reality to motivate you that you need to acknowledge, and that is the final motivation of the last judgment. Because death is not the end. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it is appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. Uh, this is the flow of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. How do we prepare for that day of judgment? That is the theme of chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. I've simply entitled the final message in this series, The End of the Matter, taking the title from the text itself. And here in this final section, the preacher sits us down one last time to make sure that we understand everything that we've been taught over these last 12 chapters. I remember when my oldest daughter went off to college a number of years ago, when we dropped her off, I sat down in a coffee shop that morning alone, with a pad and a pen, and I wrote her one last letter from dad. One last 
note reminding her of all that I wanted her to learn and hoped, hoped for her and dreamed for her. And then I went to the student mailroom and I dropped it in her mailbox and then I drove off with tears in my eyes. That's the spirit of this epilogue of Ecclesiastes. This is one final word from the teacher to us before we part ways for good. You'll see three parts to the message today as Solomon teaches us how to prepare well for this day of judgment. We need to embrace these three realities. We need to embrace the gift, we need to embrace the goad, and we need to embrace the peg. You'll see what I mean when we dig in. Let's pray. God, thank you for preserving this text for us. It has been so rich and so relevant to our lives. And so as we gather around your word one last time, we invite you as your students in a spirit of humility and in a posture of learning and openness to teach us one last time. Uh, So for this time, would, would you wake us up to these eternal realities that exist as fixed points in our future? We ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen. Movement one, the gift. Start with me in verse nine. Uh, the, The teacher says this, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Verse 9 is consistent with what we know about King Solomon in our Bibles, isn't it? 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32 says King Solomon wrote thousands of proverbs to help his people to navigate life. He led them with the wisdom that he received from God. Notice it says that he searched it out and arranged it. The root word for the word arranged there in the Hebrew means that he wrestled with these words. Theologian John Stott said the image here is like a dog wrestling with a bone. You ever see a dog wrestle with a bone and they, they won't let go of that bone until they get every piece of gristle off that bone? This is Solomon scouring the earth, scouring uh, for wisdom, searching diligently uh, for wisdom that he might share as a gift to others. Go back to verse 9. The verse also indicates that this writer is not some ivory tower scholar. He was wise, but he also shared his wisdom with others. He taught others with great care and great skill. He was generous with his wisdom, as he taught us to be in chapter 11 with our finances. Uh, Solomon does not hoard all of his learning or his wisdom. Rather, he casts his bread upon the waters and shares this wisdom freely as a gift to his readers. And with us, and we've been enjoying this series for three months and learning at this preacher's feet. Has this not been a rich and meaningful series in God's word? Amen? Amen. I have so appreciated Pastor Bob's exposition and my own study in this text. It's just been so, so special. These words are words of wisdom. Uh, Verse 10 talks about that, the power of words. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Words are wonderful. Words are powerful. Words accomplish things. Words can wound. Words can heal. And here he says words can be delightful. Do you see that word? The word delight there means pleasurable, winsome, easy to grasp, readily applied. Is there anything in your life that you find to be really, really delightful? Is there anything in your life that you find to be just very, very delightful? This is your cue, slide person. (laughs) So yesterday, I was at the trunk or treat being 
the parking guy, and somebody rolls down their window, and they're like, Pastor Dave, I have a gift for you. And this, this sweet little, little child gave me this wonderful manna from heaven, a Reese's peanut butter cup. I think I talk about these way, way, way too, too, too much. I've been talking about these this, this whole series, so today I've actually brought one, uh, because these are my delight, and I'm going to eat one right here in front of you on the stage. These, these Reese's peanut butter cups are delightful. They are delightful. Pastor Dave, you are weirder than we even knew. You're so weird. You're just weird. Solomon says the wisdom of the Bible is like that. It's delightful. Psalm 19 says it's sweeter than honey, like drippings from a honeycomb. Meaning what? Meaning God is not a cosmic killjoy. No, Psalm 16 says at his right hand are pleasures, pleasures forevermore. Look again at verse 10. Can I ask you a question? Is that how you relate to the wisdom of God in your life? Do you listen to the wisdom from Ecclesiastes and find it to be delightful and pleasurable? We're told in chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to remember our Creator. How do we do that? This is how. You measure how well you are remembering your Creator by whether or not you find the Bible as delightful. To see the Bible as delightful requires a certain view of yourself, though. It requires seeing yourself as poor and hungry, as unsure, as disoriented, as floundering. And if you see yourself that way, then you will find the wisdom of God to be sure and trustworthy and precious and delightful. Verse 10 says these are also words of truth. Yes, friends, God's word is true and it's trustworthy. It is beautiful because it's true and it is true because it's beautiful. It's beautifully true. God's word will never lead you astray. You can count on it. It's inspired. This idea of eternal truth isn't very popular in our culture today. For example, there's a book called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity by Michael Kruger. It's a critique of some of the theology of Richard Rohr where he goes through some of the cultural narratives that are very popular today and he calls them the Ten Commandments of our day. Take a look at commandment number five. It speaks about this issue. Here's what it says. Commandment number five is this. Inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. Inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. And there's nothing wrong with good questions, but this is kind of a hallmark of progressive thought, isn't it? It's all about prioritizing the journey over the destination and landing on any solid answers. And so this kind of thinking allows for unlimited self-discovery. Well, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this is if questions are more valuable than having answers, where does this put Scripture as being truth? There's no room for it. Look again at verse 10. Friends, this is totally at odds with what Solomon is saying right here. He's saying you need words of truth. Yes, there's mystery of life. Yes, we don't know everything, but there's also real truth that we can know. We need a place to stand, and thank God we have a place to stand. He has spoken to us in His Word and in His Son. You recall during Holy Week, there was an interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. In John chapter 18, Jesus said this to the ruler. He said, I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into this world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The question we have to ask ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, is when you hear the words of the Lord Jesus, do you hear his voice? This is the voice of truth. And this is where Pilate famously answered, what is truth? 
What a perfect example of the zeitgeist of our day. I finally worked in the word zeitgeist into our series. <laughs> we need words of truth. Truth is a gift. Words of truth are words of wisdom. Words of truth are words of delight. Words of truth are words that make you smile, but words of truth are also words that make you wince, which brings us to movement two. We don't only need the gift, we also need the goad. We've seen the gift, now let's take a look at the goad. Look at verse 11 with me, if you will. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Notice that word goad. It's probable that some of you have never seen a goad. A goad was a staff. It was about six feet long, and it was used to poke and prod an animal with a very sharp tip. So a goad was a herd driver. Uh, Sheep are not known to be the brightest animals in the world. They need a shepherd. Uh, Left to our own devices, the scripture says we are like sheep. We may not always choose what is right. And so there's the need for the goad. So if the animal went to the left, there was pain. And if the animal went to the right, there was pain. And so the pain was there because the shepherd wanted him to go a certain way. And this, like sheep, is what we all need to keep us on the path, to keep us on the straight and narrow. Why? Because it gets us to the right destination. We need the goad to jab us and to get us moving. Sometimes we need the goad. Just take your palm branch and poke your neighbor. You need, you need the goad, tell him. You need the goad. Look, look back at the verse, if you will. Friends, the wisdom of the Bible and the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to move you. God's word sometimes comforts the afflicted, but at other times it, it afflicts the comfortable. So if you want to know and walk with God all your days, then what you need is sometimes some pain. You need the goad. And when it comes, let me warn you, it will be unpleasant but it will be good because it will keep you from doing stupid things and ignorant things. There are so many goads in the book of Ecclesiastes. For example, Ecclesiastes has told us in chapter 11, the dark days will come and they will be many. That's a goad. And a goad can be a warning. You can see someone else going down the wrong way and realize, I don't have to get the goad. They got the goad. I don't need the goad. I'm going to keep going. So we need the gift, but we also need the goad. We need the pleasure and the, 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 the delight of the Bible, but we also need the pain of the Bible. Do you embrace that too? See, that's another way to know if I'm remembering my creator. That's another way to evaluate my relationship with God. If I'm remembering my creator, then, then I'll ask myself, Dave, when was the last time I felt the pain of the Bible and submitted to it even though I didn't like what it said? Even though I find it to be offensive? See, the natural person who does not know God, left to themselves, won't do that. Rather than allow the Bible to poke and prod them, they will try to poke and prod the Bible. This is not wisdom. This is not the wisdom given by the one shepherd. Notice that phrase, one shepherd, meaning this book is inspired by God. The shepherd in this context was not Solomon, it was not David, it was not some earthly ruler or prince, it was God himself, the shepherd king. Solomon was a shepherd, but he knew he wasn't the shepherd. He was a king, but he knew he wasn't the king. There was a greater king, and that was God, the one true shepherd. 
That's why the word shepherd is capitalized in this particular translation, because this word is describing God himself. God oftentimes refers to himself in the scriptures as a shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and many other places. Psalm 80, verse 1, Isaiah 40, verse 11, Ezekiel 34, 23, 37, 24. Our one shepherd in the Bible is God himself, who has given us his word. Notice he likens the words of the wise to nails firmly fixed. Do you see that image? Really, there's a two-fold imagery there. First of all, the, the term could refer to a tent stake. Uh, the, the, the word refers to a sharp spike. If you ever try to put up a tent in a windstorm, then you know the value of a tent stake. Uh, our family has this blanket we bring to the beach And we have these four stakes that go on the four corners of the blanket. And when we're spreading out our blanket there on the Jersey Shore, we stake it down. And we're thankful for those stakes because they they protect our blanket from being blown around. Just like that, friends, God is saying here, you need a tent stake. You need a tent peg in your life to secure your entire life from becoming a chasing after the wind and from being blown around with every wind of doctrine and every philosophical fad and generational trend. You need a well-driven nail to keep you grounded in the truth. Secondly, this term also referred to a a nail or a peg that existed actually inside of the home or inside of the tent upon which they would hang their most valuable items to keep them and protect them. In those days, there was no coat closets. And so they had these pegs in the home. And so a Jewish family would always hang their most important articles of clothing and their most important valuables on the peg. Friends, this is what God has given us. He's given us a peg. The book of Ezra says God has given us a peg in the holy place. Take a look at chapter 9, verse 8. Ezra says, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes. The context here is after the people of God have gone into exile and returned from exile, God once again gave his remnant a peg of his grace and the peg of his word, a place in his presence to hang their entire lives on it. That's what you need. You need a peg. Meaning, friends, you can hang your whole life on God's wisdom and God's word. Everything valuable that you have, his word will never give way. It can hold a lot of weight. You need a peg. I'll come back to the peg in just a moment. First, a warning. Verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. And all the students in the body said, Amen. But this was true way back in Solomon's day, 3,000 years ago. The philosophers from ancient times were waxing eloquently back then. They had the wisdom of the Egyptians, the wisdom of Amenemope. Then they had the wisdom of the Greeks. And then Socrates gave way to Plato, and Plato gave way to Aristotle. And Aristotle gave way to the Stoics and the Epicureans. And then we have hedonism and romanticism, and then we have nihilism, and then secularism. And now we have postmodernism. And now we have Neil deGrasse Tysonism. And on and on and on and on. And there are so many books and so many worldviews, all of them many of the times contradicting each other when it comes to philosophy and metaphysics and science and epistemology. And everybody's got a different opinion because they're not starting from the foundation of God's revelation. Solomon says, don't be deceived. Solomon would say, beware. Why don't you instead take the peg? Why don't you instead take the well-driven nail? Take the wisdom of the Bible given by the one shepherd. 
This is the right way. Don't overcomplicate it. Dr. Karl Barth was a very prolific theologian and author in his day, wrote so many different volumes, traveled the entire world. At the very end of his life, he was once asked to state the most profound thing he had ever learned. In all of his writings, in all of his travels, he said, you want to know the most profound thing I've ever learned? Here it is. He said, it's this statement. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. This is what the kids are learning in nursery school over there. But yet here it is. This is the well-driven nail. Verse 13. Solomon says, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Wow. Did you notice? Here is what Solomon is saying. I found the cure for this disease of meaninglessness that we've been talking about. What's the cure? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is our entire duty, the duty of all mankind. Hebrew, the Hebrew literally says, this is the whole of man. You might say that verse 13 is the ancient Hebrew way of articulating the truth of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is why mankind was created, to be in fellowship with and to remember his creator, to fear God and to keep his commandments. Nothing else will satisfy Augustine said it this way, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. This is the duty of man. Recently, Pastor Bob and I were talking to the rabbis next door about the book of Ecclesiastes, and one of the Hebrew words I asked them to unpack for me was this Hebrew word for fear in chapter 12, the Hebrew word yare. And Rabbi Mendi said, To fear here, the Hebrew word yare, is, quote, about a feeling of the loss of self. In making room in one's heart for another, he said this includes awe, respect, surrender, responsibility, and loyalty, unquote. I really like that. To fear God means to remember God and to respect God and to regard God with all the adoration and love and obedience that rightfully belongs to him. It means taking God seriously. It means living on our knees, humbling ourselves, and exalting our beautiful creator as the one who knows best. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Charles Bridges said, The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Unquote. This is our duty in all of life, to fear God and keep his commandments. This is so important. The reason is because we tend to compartmentalize our lives and we stop short of our real, higher, transcendent duty in life. We think of our duties and our responsibilities to our spouse or to our kids or to our parents or to our boss or to our friends. And yes, we do have duties and responsibilities to all of those parties. That is true. But here what the preacher is saying is that don't you realize that every single one of those duties that you have goes far beyond them? Don't you realize that you actually have, first and foremost, a duty to God himself? In other words, why do you need to be a good employee? To please your boss? No. It's because you fear God and must keep his commandments. Why do you need to be a certain kind of spouse? Because they're always perfect back to you? No. If so, you will never be a good spouse. 
you're a good spouse because you fear God and you keep his commandments. You go through those responsibilities to a greater responsibility. When our daughter was little, she went through the ranks of karate and earned her black belt. So occasionally they would have her break these boards. And what they told her uh, when she was first breaking boards is you can't just aim at the board. you got to go through the board. If you want to go breaking this board, don't focus on the board. Focus on a point. Focus your eyes or your fists or your feet on a point that's well beyond the board and aim for that, and then you'll go through the board. Here's a short video of her practicing with me in the basement of all uh, of those, those breaking of boards. You can, you can check out her skills here. That's how you do it. First of all, don't mess with my daughter, Michaela. She will kick you. But the illustration here is a principle that Solomon is teaching us, that we need to look beyond our earthly duties to our heavenly duties. We need to go beyond the board. And perhaps if we thought of our lives this way in living to honor God first, it would radically change our responsibility toward others. Isn't this what the New Testament teaches too? You don't work for man. You work for God. Honor and glorify him at work. So this is our duty. This is our comprehensive totality. In other words, our entire lives are to live quorum, to be lived quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. Why is that so important? Verse 14 tells us there's a coming judgment. Verse 14, the final verse of the book. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every word, every action will be judged. The weight of the warning here actually falls on the words every and secret. This is a frightening verse. This is a sobering scripture. Think of it this way. On the day you were born, God hit the record button. And on the day you die, God will hit stop and then hit rewind and then hit play. Friends, this is a goad. But this is a goad I need. This is a goad we need. There's a final accounting. There's something after death. There's a judgment. But even this, we remember, is good news. Even this, we remember, helps us understand the, enig the enigmas of life. Remember in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Solomon said, I, some of the hardest things out there that I've ever seen are these oppressions and the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. What do we say to that? The preacher says, let me tell you what you say to that. There is comfort that's coming, and the comfort will come on the last day of judgment when God makes all things right. There is a judgment for unbelievers, but then there's also a judgment for believers, you don't want to be at the judgment for the unbelievers called the great white throne judgment. There's no mercy there. But the judgment for believers is also a serious matter. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And we should have a reverent fear expecting this day of accounting will come as well for us. I have this terrible recurring dream. It's really kind of a nightmare. It keeps happening to me. The dream is... I'm in some kind of situation where I'm totally unprepared for something that I have to do. It has something to do with school. It's a dream, so the memories are a little fuzzy. But I'm like supposed to be in class. But I have, the dream is clear that I have not been going to this class at all. In the dream, I haven't done one homework assignment. In the dream, I haven't read one book. In the dream, I'm like totally unprepared for this class. 
and I wake up, and it's this horrible feeling. It's this terrible feeling. When I wake up, I want to go find my backpack, I want to go get in the car, and I want to go drive to class. And then I remember, after a few moments, does anybody else have a dream like this? Okay, I'm not the only crazy person out here. I wake up in this cold sweat, and it takes me a few minutes to realize I don't have a class. I'm not even in school. Like, I graduated 20 years ago. But it's upsetting. What the heck? My point here, friends, is that the preacher is teaching us. The the book of Ecclesiastes is saying this. Someday people will discover one day for real they're actually unprepared for the most important event in their lives. And it won't be a dream. It will be the ultimate wake-up call. Their lives have been one long exercise up until this point in avoiding reality and putting their head in the sand and ignoring what is coming toward them like a freight train. But on this day, they won't be able to escape that reality. Here the preacher is coming to us as if we are sleeping and rousing us from our slumber and rousing us back to reality, saying, don't you realize Death is coming, and don't you realize death is not the end? There's something after death coming. Judgment is coming for you. As the book of Hebrews says, it is appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. The point here is that both your death and your judgment to follow are these two great fixed points in your future. You don't know everything, but you do know those two things are coming. And recognizing and acknowledging those two things coming in your future will and should totally transform the way you live today. Tony Evans' son, Jonathan Evans, who played in the NFL for five years, said every football player in the NFL plays on Sunday thinking about Monday. He said every time a player is playing the game, they're thinking about the next day because the next day on Monday is when you have to watch the game film with your coach, and you have to give an accounting for your performance on the day before. And so he said, you better stay focused on Sunday because on Monday your coach is going to bring you into this meeting and there's a locker room and he's going to pull down this screen and he's going to pull it, put on the projector and he's got this red pointer thing. And all that's going to matter on Monday is the coach saying, on this video, on the field, were you out there bearing the image of the uniform that I gave you? playing the game based on the playbook that I wrote for you? Or were you just out there on the field doing your own thing? Don't answer that. We're about to watch the tape right now. Here at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is saying the exact same thing. Verse 14 is written in preparation for a judgment. Death is not the end of the matter. There's something after death. It is God's judgment. That's the end of the matter. Do you realize how serious this is? You cannot live on your own terms. Last week in our passage, Solomon asked us, are you prepared to die? This week in our final passage, Solomon is asking, are you prepared for the judgment? Because that's the real conclusion. That's the real end of the matter. So, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. And here's the problem. None of us can really say that we have always feared God and kept his commandments perfectly. Not even Solomon, who wrote this book, 
None of us have lived our lives always fearing God and always keeping his commandments. And so here at our church, we believe what the Bible says is true and that there's this thing called sin. We don't say this because this is how we want the story to be written. We say it because it's what God has revealed to us in his inerrant word. And so we want to tell you the truth. And the truth is that you have not lived in such a way that you deserve God's applause. The truth is that you've lived in such a way that you deserve God's condemnation. You're not unusual in that. You're like everyone else sitting in this room, especially the guy standing up here. It's true of all of us. Maybe you've never had a friend who loved you enough to tell you that, but we're going to tell you that here because it's the truth. And we all need a remedy to this gigantic problem. And that leads us to movement three, the peg. Look back with me again at verse 11 one more time. Notice again in this verse, he says, wisdom is likened to firmly fixed nails. Does that phrase remind you of anything? As we said earlier, literally in the Hebrew, the term means a peg. Did you know that one of the names for the Messiah in the Old Testament is the peg? We find this very rare term used by Zechariah the prophet, right after chapter 9, where he told us the Messiah would come triumphantly riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, predicted that event perfectly in advance. In chapter 10, Zechariah says this, from Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg. Out of all the images in the Bible to take on for himself, why did God choose to use this one for his Messiah? It's not only because he secures the tent of your life and gives you a sure foundation on which to build and which won't be blown around. That's true. It's also because the Messiah would come and take the peg of God's judgment in his own hands and in his own feet for you. Isaiah the prophet said he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace would be upon him. And by his stripes we would be healed. The scripture says that Jesus is the only one who always feared God and always kept his commandments. And when he came, he came to live the life that you should have lived and then die the death that you deserved and take the peg for you. On the cross, Jesus stood condemned in judgment in our place. That's good news. This is what we celebrate on Holy Week. Look again at verse 11. Notice the term, the one shepherd. This is one of the titles that the Lord Jesus took on for himself. Yes, Ecclesiastes has been a great source of wisdom, but friends, when Jesus came on the scene, he very clearly said, truly, truly, I tell you, someone greater than Solomon is here. Colossians 2, 3 says he is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the sage with a capital S. The Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. Take a look at what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 14. I'll just read it for you. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. So friends, as we begin Holy Week, this is what we are celebrating that we are celebrating that there is one true shepherd who is not only our holy and perfect and sovereign judge, 
but we are also celebrating our one shepherd who also became our loving Savior. He is, as we will sing together in a few moments, Jesus strong and kind. Can I ask you, have you ever had a moment in your life where you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Today, he stands ready to save you if you will simply cry out, Hosanna. And for all of us, if you want to find meaning in the madness, knowing him is what brings true meaning to the madness of this world. And if you want to be prepared for the end, you need three things. You need the gift. You need the goad. You need the peg. I'd like to invite the worship team to come and lead us in one last song. And as we wrap up this series today, let me set a choice before all of us. The book of Ecclesiastes has put a fork in the road in all of our lives and hearts. Option one is you can either have no God and be totally confused and live a life of utter madness. Or option two is you can acknowledge that the essence of all of life is to remember your creator and to follow the wisdom given by the one true shepherd, the one who took the peg in his hands and his feet for you. And after doing so, he gives you his Holy Spirit and empowers you to live a life that will fear God and to keep his commandments. The choice is yours. But can you imagine? Can you just imagine a church full of men and women who take this text seriously, who live in light of the future, a church full of people who fear God and keep his commandments? Let's be that church. Would you pray with me? Oh God, how simple and how good this book has been for us to study. As we approach this week, humble us, dear God. Remind us again of the work of the one true shepherd. Remind us of our Lord Jesus, who is both strong and kind. Today in our hearts and with our lips, we sing Hosanna. Save us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.